Welcome to the Explorer's Roundtable, where intrepid voyagers share tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. Here's your host for the evening, Jonathan Hal Reynolds. Good evening. Tonight at the Roundtable, we have Bill Steele, one of the most well-known cave explorers in the world. He is a fellow of the Explorers Club and the chairman for the United States Deep Caving Team. As a speleologist, he has explored more than 2,500 caves across North America and Asia. His expeditions have been filmed for TV shows such as National Geographic Explorer, and he's written two books chronicling his expeditions. Bill, thank you for joining us here tonight at the Roundtable. Now, I know you got the bug for caving at a young age. Can you tell us the story of what you experienced in those early years, which fed into what has become a lifelong passion? Yeah, my first cave... I entered when I was four years old, and it's actually my first distinct memory in life. We went in a show cave, meaning a cave developed for tourists, above Chattanooga, Tennessee, at, at a place called Rock City. And uh, family lore uh, was that uh, something kind of clicked in me that I that I was fascinated, and uh, I was already into rocks. And, and was interested in rocks. And I was forever picking up interesting looking rocks and bringing them home. But when I went in that cave, it was like entering a rock. I was inside of a rock and putting my ch- cheek against the wall and feeling how cool it felt and, uh, and just the this, this strength of it, you know. And the next day, we passed another cave and I begged my parents to go there. And I did my second cave the next day, and that was Ruby Falls, which is kind of famous, uh, also on Lookout Mountain above Chattanooga. And um, my parents were really good about indulging their kids' interests. They just wanted you to be interested in stuff, and whatever it was, they fed it. And uh, I got to go in Mammoth, which is the longest cave in the world. It's in Kentucky. And we moved to L.A. All of a sudden, we were on the road driving to Los Angeles. What do I know? You know, I'm a kid. And we went to Carlsbad on the way because uh, my parents knew I would really like that. And that's just a whole order of magnitude, bigger and more impressive. And, uh, and one thing they did on that tour, and I've been to the spot since. I remember where it is on the, on the tourist trail. They had us uh, sit down. And they turned off the lights to show us how dark it is. And it's just unbelievably dark. And I said to my parents, uh, God, it was so dark that uh, the darkness pulled at my face. And my dad said, son, you got away with words there. That's pretty good. That's, that's good energy. Keep it up. And Boy Scouts played a big role in your life. Can you tell us how Scouts encouraged or influenced your desire to pursue caving? I really wanted to be in Boy Scouts because I saw that as my ticket to adventure and travel. September, October, we would kick around ideas of what we were going to do at adventure camp the next summer. And I raised my hand right off and said, how about going caving? And the scoutmaster smiled and he said, that'd be good. Uh, matter of fact, where I grew up in Northern Kentucky, I know there's caves on farms that, that were neighbors that, I don't think anybody's explored. So find an expert and bring him to a meeting to tell us what we need to know. And I went home and I said to my dad, God, how do I find an expert? 
And, and my dad, being a college-educated, pretty smart guy, he said, well, you always start at the library. Let's go to the library. So we went to the main public library in Dayton, Ohio, and he wandered off to look at stuff that he was interested in. And he said, go over there to the card catalogs and look up caves. Well, there was a lot of books about caving there. I was amazed that there was a body of literature. And I didn't find out for maybe... I don't know, probably seven years later, I found out that the nucleus of, of people who were giving leadership to the exploration of Mammoth Cave in Kentucky lived there. And they caused those books to be in the library. They donated them or they told the librarian to buy them. And so I just started reading them. And uh, I got the idea in my head about deep caves because the, the books about the deepest caves in the world at the time in the Pyrenees on the border of uh, France and Spain, and also the Alps of France, had just been translated into English. So I read Castoret's books and Tazias books, and and uh, you know, kind of in my mind projected myself to be like that. You know, I want to be one of those guys. I want to do that. And then I found a way to do it. So the first that first week that we went caving as a troop. We actually camped in a state park in northern Kentucky named Carter Cave State Park. And um, and we did all those caves that were there in the state park, but they were all explored and and mapped. Uh, and we got the maps and we were, you know, learning how to follow a cave map through a cave. But then that was just two or three days of that. And then the other three or four days of the week, we went to neighboring farms where my scoutmaster had uh, knew the owners because he'd grown up there in that area. Because that was a real stroke of luck, you know, to have a scoutmaster that was from a cave area. And uh, the cave that made the big difference was this one that they called Cattle Cooler. And it was back in the pasture. There was a sinkhole with a big cave entrance. And the farmer said, well, the cows go in there when it's really hot in the summer. There's a big flat forward room, but nobody's been beyond where the cows have gone. And uh, you boys are welcome to go look around. I don't know. I don't know if there's any passages there. There's a big pile of rocks against the back wall. And uh, I was the leader of it because I was the one most interested in caves. And also I had read a bunch. So I kind of knew what you're looking for, you know, the, the signs like airflow, for instance. And uh, there was some airflow into the rocks. And I knew that that meant there's passages beyond because there's an exchange with the surface of barometric equalization. And we started poking around, found a way to squeeze between the rocks. And the farther we went, the fewer of us there were till it was just me and two others that were willing to beat our bodies up like that, squeeze them between sharp rocks. And we popped up into a upper level big tunnel with no footprints on the floor. And I knew that that meant this had not been reached before. This is unexplored. And uh, that was in 63. So the space race was on, you know, we were, we were starting up the Apollo program and exploration was really on everybody's mind in the United States at the time, uh, much more than, than has been the case since. And um, the funny thing about that, about the, about us exploring that passage, which uh, only went about a thousand feet. So that's three football fields long, big, beautiful tunnel, like a subway tunnel. And then there was a collapse at the back was that uh, 
right away I got this idea. <laughs> I think I'd seen in a movie, maybe a Western. I said, hey, I'll go ahead and you guys step in my footprints. So we went slowly, savoring the expiration, a thousand feet down this passage to where it ended with one set of footprints because the other two guys stepped in my footprints. <laughs> and then on the way back, we walked backwards in the same footprints. So it sounds kind of silly, but that's the way boys are, you know. And uh, from then on, for, for all the rest of the years I was in that troop, every campfire, we laughed about that. How whoever found that passage again is going to think some guy's still back there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Ridiculous. Did you have any other influences in those early years? Any books that inspired you or explorers that you looked up to? There was comic books that came out when I was about 10 called Cave Carson. In fact, right here behind me, I've got the original one from when I was a kid. I still have it because they were precious to me. You know, those comic books. That's where I first learned the word speleologist was uh, in a Cave Carson comic book. And then I discovered uh, Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth, the book. Uh, and then... Um, the movie came out when I was 11, I think. On a typical expedition, what does your gear list look like? What are the must-haves that you always take with you? So there's a big difference between what I might use on the weekends here in Texas and what I might take internationally to, say, southern Mexico. Most of the caves I do here in Texas uh, involve swimming in deep water or, or wading in deep water. But, they're, but the ones I am working on are wet. Um, the longest cave in Texas is an ongoing project of mine. It's uh, 21 miles long, and it's just a little bit north of San Antonio. It's a tributary of the Guadalupe River. Mm. So there, I would really have to pay attention to to water. Everything's got to be ready to, to be in a lot of water. Wetsuit will keep me warm and buoyant. You can't drown with a wetsuit on. And um, then my lights. But I always use the same lights, and they're very rugged. Uh, that's your primary piece of gear is your is your lights because caves are totally dark and you can't step a foot without seeing seeing you know with without good lights and I own the state of the art uh, I coughed up the money and bought uh, Swiss engineered scurry-on LEDs I own two um, and they're just totally bomb-proof uh, incredibly rugged. Uh, various settings uh, that will give me from 80 hours of continuous light, which is like lighting up a room, to a spot beam that will go 400 feet and see if a rope reaches the bottom of a shaft, let's say. Um, so I got the best lights in the world. Um, and then you always have more than one light. That's just a rule of thumb. It's just a rule you don't break. And I never have. I've never, ever completely run out of light ever once but i've been with people that have and and that's why what we tell everybody is three equally good sources of light on you all the time so i got two on my helmet i got a flashlight mounted on the side which i can just push a button if my main light goes out for some reason uh i just reach up here and push a button and i got a light on i'm not stuck in the dark uh, and then in my pack inside of this half gallon wide mouth Nalgene bottle that I always carry because I've got various repair things and so on inside of it, water purification and stuff like that, pliers, 
knife, uh, zip ties. You can repair all kinds of stuff with zip ties. Uh, I put two uh, Nightcore headlamps in there, 1,000 lumen, very rugged but small, uh, and some extra batteries. So um, gloves, you know, keep your hands nice. Uh, if your hands get wet, then your skin gets soft and gets lacerated easily. Uh, knee pads. My knees are good to this day because I always wear knee pads and always have. And and rock climbers, you know, they'll uh, scold each other for using anything but their hands and their feet. There's these rules, you know. Cavers aren't like that uh, at all. In fact, uh, I've got hands, feet, knees, and elbows. And uh, I've even used my chin before on a climb. Uh, and, and nobody scolds you. Uh, they'll probably do it just like you did. Uh, so I, I have used my knees, you know, on handholds and my knee, my elbows and my knees, and, and they're padded well. And then, you know, the clothes will vary with what the condition of the cave is. I've got a couple of cave suits. My favorite one's one that I brought over from Europe. This fits me real well. It's a, a Cordura nylon. And then given where I am and the temperature within the cave, I would vary the weight of uh, uh, synthetic underwear that I would wear under it. In Wautla, uh, which is uh, 61 degrees or 60 degrees Fahrenheit, about 16 degrees Celsius, the caves are always the same temperature. Uh, and in Texas, the caves are 70 degrees warmer. Uh, in Wautla, we used to wear wetsuits all the time in everything because we were going to come to water eventually and you could cool off and you could swim. And, uh, but nowadays it's changed and people don't and they wear, um, a cave suit, a nylon cave suit with, uh, with insulated underwear, uh, synthetic underwear under it. An expedition where I'm going to say be in Mexico for a month and I can't order stuff and have it delivered to the house. I got, I've got it. I'm there with what I've got and having been at this a long time, I should know what I'm doing, so I have extra things that if we have somebody come that, you know, needs to borrow something, I've probably got it. Mm. So I'll fill a great big duffel bag of all kinds of stuff uh, from maybe a three-pound hand sledge, you know, so there's a big hefty hammer in case there's a place where you might be able to knock off the corner of a rock to squeeze through, something like that, uh, to... Uh, you know, various means of various kinds of survey instruments as we map the caves and we pride ourselves on the accuracy of the map. Mm. Um, so as I wrote to you, uh, you know, weekend stuff, I keep a duffel bag with all that stuff in it. So I just go out there and, and look in it quickly to make sure something hadn't wandered away from it, but I'm pretty much ready to go. During the, uh, the pandemic, I haven't gone very much a few times, but Normally, I go two or three times a month here in Texas. Mm. Um, but then when I, when I go on an expedition, like when I go to Watla the next time, either this December or, or April, we, we don't know yet. Depends on the pandemic and availability of vaccine for everybody. But anyway, uh, I will probably take uh, you know a good week of having everything laid out on the floor. And I'll also go through probably most all the gear I own and can, which is a lot and consider, do I, might I need this? Might I need that? 
One of the most impressive moments of your career was in 1971 when you mapped the longest cave in Mexico at the time, a cave that contains the oldest known cave paintings in the Western Hemisphere. Could you tell us what that experience was like and what it felt like to first lay eyes upon the cave paintings? Yeah, my first trip to Mexico was the year before, in 1970. And uh, cavers in the United States that were into vertical caves, as we call it, rope work in caves, uh, all wanted to do the most uh, incredible, spectacular cave entrance in the world. I think it still it is, you know, hands down. Uh, Sotono de las Colondrinas. And it's as deep as the Empire State Building is high. And uh, it's bell-shaped. So once you go over the edge at the top, you get farther and farther away from the wall as you go down. You're just hanging out in this incredible void. And the floor is six acres in size at the bottom. So I organized a trip when I was uh, 21 and, and still in college to do it over Christmas break. And we drove an old car that I had down there and and filled two weeks of time with one big pit after another for two weeks and then drove back. Well, that was my first trip to Mexico and it was just enchanting, you know, everything clicked. Uh, we found some passages people had overlooked and so on. Then I was back in college and the following summer, summer of 71, this good friend of mine, his mom passed away and he inherited a bunch of money. And he didn't have any money before she passed away. And all of a sudden, he's got plenty. And he said, God, let's uh, let's go to Mexico and find a cave to explore and map. And I said, well, I don't know. I've got one year to go and graduate and get, uh, you know, get serious about life. So, but he talked me into it. So I dropped out of college. And that was during the Vietnam War, which was risky because, you know, I could end up over there as a soldier. I wasn't so sure I wanted to do that. And, um, uh, we went to Mexico, and when we stopped in Austin to, to talk to the people that knew the most about the caves of Mexico, we talked to Bill Russell, who was the, uh, he's passed away now, but he was the, I call him the walking encyclopedia of caves of Mexico and, and Texas. In fact, he was the one that discovered Wautla, and he did so academically, you know, he, he he looked at geology and figured out where the deepest caves in the Americas should be. And that's where it is. And um, he had a copy of life magazine from 67. So it was four years prior to that, that made the claim that the oldest cave paintings in the Americas had been found in this cave in Guerrero, which is a state where uh, Acapulco is. So he said, you guys had to go explore that cave. Uh, there's no map of the article. They probably, have, probably haven't mapped it. So we did. And when we got there, there was a dirt road back into the mountains of Guerrero. Um, we were directed to this, uh, this man's house, uh, Andres Ortega. And Andres was sort of the Renaissance man of the town. He was everything, you know, he was the vet. He was the pharmacist. He was the, guy to the cave he was the innkeeper you know just a real enterprising guy funny uh smart well read he uh had a son that was gung ho about caving he even had a couple of norbert castoray's books the frenchman i mentioned before his son did um enrique 
So he took us to the cave and we had to hike out there. I don't know, maybe five miles outside of town. We had to wade a river up to our waist, kind of a strong current. And uh, there was a path to the cave entrance. And uh, he carried a Coleman lantern and wore short pants and sandals. And, uh, and he took us a mile into the cave and, and showed us the paintings and encouraged us to stay and told us we could camp out there uh, right before the first ford of the river and, uh, you know, explore the cave, our heart's content and map it. So we did, it took us a couple of months and there were, there were uh, the three of us, my friend and his wife and me, but we ran, we would take a break every, every 10 days or two weeks. And we drive down to Acapulco and camp on the beach and, uh, get some rest and relaxation and then go back up there and get back to the cave. And we met this British guy that had just crossed the Pacific and, uh, he'd uh, hired onto a freighter and he became a caver. And then the, the, the cave guide's son Enrique did a bunch of caving with us. So we, uh, you know, had a team, we explored it and mapped it. And then once we were back in the States, we produced a really nice map of it. And it was the longest cave in, in uh, Mexico at the time. And, you know, we published in the caving literature about it. Um, and I didn't go back there uh, for 30 years. And that was in 71. And then I went back in uh, 2002 because there was a caving convention, I guess you could call it. They call it Mexpilio, and, and they don't have them. They haven't had them in several years, but that, they did have one in Guerrero, not that far from Ustawaka. And I went just to take the tour, just to see what it had become, because I'd seen my map on a billboard. You know, that's kind of remarkable. You're driving along, and there's your map you made on a billboard. <laughs> so we went to see the cave that had become a national park, um, based of course, mainly on the cave paintings because they're Olmec and that's the original civilization, more advanced civilization in Mexico. Very old, 3000 years old. And a lot of their beliefs, the Olmec beliefs became the beliefs later of the, of the other cultures, the Zapotecs, the Aztecs, the Mayas and so forth. Basic beliefs are basically the same, you know, uh, rain gods and, and uh, war gods and, and this stuff human sacrifice too. And, uh, and then I guess just a year or two later, I got in on mapping, uh, exploring a map in another cave that became the longer cave in, in Mexico. And then later in Watla, another cave, longer cave in Mexico. So, you know, that changes through the years. And now that cave, Hustawaka is way, way down the list. It's not probably not in the, top 50 longest caves in Mexico. I bet lots been done since then. What were the cave paintings of? And did you guys interpret any kind of meaning from the paintings? Yeah, they've been interpreted by archeologists that specialize in that culture, that extinct culture, the Olmec culture. And the Olmec uh, uh, originally settled along the Gulf of Mexico coast, specifically in the state of Veracruz. There's even speculation that there may have been um, influence from Africa, but that's not been proven. No artifacts have been found that have come from Africa at that time or anything. But um, 
Yeah, the, the first painting you come to on the wall, as you get to this big room, it's called the Salon de Baye, the, 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 the dancing room. The first painting is life-size of a priest dressed in a jaguar skin. So they skinned a big jaguar cat, and the priest has got it on. The jaguar is a kind of a deity. Uh, to to Mesoamerican belief, and and their thought is, and it's ingrained, and even to this day, to some extent, that when the sun goes down in the west, where does it go? And then it pops up in the east. They didn't really have a comprehension of, you know, the Earth as it is, and and uh, and the solar system and so forth. So they they had this belief that that the sun traversed from the west to the east underground, and it was escorted by a jaguar uh, through the, the caves of the underworld. So high significance to the jaguar. And um, in front of the, the life-size priest who's dressed in the jaguar skin is a, is a captive on his knees with a noose around his neck, and it's presumed that he was to be sacrificed because there's many... Uh, artistic representations of such a scene. And then um, then you enter this big room, and the room is about the size of maybe a high school auditorium, uh, maybe 50-foot high ceiling, 75, 100 feet wide, about 200 feet long, big room, flat floor. And uh, we saw when we were mapping the cave that they had diverted a stream that had run across the middle of that room to against the wall and had packed dirt in there and made a flat floor out of it. Uh, we figured probably for dancing, uh, at least for ceremonies. And then I climbed up on this big, massive flowstone on the far end of the room, which is type of cave formation that's against the wall. Uh, same material as stalagmites or stalactites, but kind of a frozen waterfall and uh there is a seat carved in it at the top and i plopped my fanny down in that seat and it was like a throne overlooking this room um and then beyond that where the cave continued beyond uh the the throne if you will uh there was a painting of a feathered serpent which is another deity of the cultures of Mexico called Quetzalcoatl. And uh, there was a jaguar painting back there too. And for the most part, it hadn't been explored beyond there. There was a, a, a lake, which in, you know, in caver par uh, parlance, that means just a body of water, not really a lake like on the surface, but it was a, there was ponded water there. It was about waist deep, chest deep. And uh, maybe, hundred feet across. So we, we waited over there and continued exploring the cave beyond that. And, uh, you know, got to every place we could. So when I went back 30 years later, I didn't want to make a big deal out of having explored the cave. I just wanted to take a tour just like everybody else. It was just, you know, blown away by the road that had been built back to it because we waded the river and, um, and that there was a, big shelter and there were some tour buses and you know there were several guides taking groups in there and we joined a group and 
and um, while we were back in the cave, a group come in the other direction uh, of all people leading that group was Enrique, who was 18 when I saw him the last in 71. And now he's, you know, almost 50 or 50. And of all things, that guy recognized me in that group, walking the other direction. He just looked right in my face and said my name, you know, and uh, hugged me and, and said, please come by the office in town when you come out. And by the time we got done with the tour and drove into town, they had some, a reporter there from the newspaper and a photographer and made a big deal out of how one of the original explorers had returned and gave me this uh, really neat uh, embroidered guide shirt and said, anytime I ever come back, the cave is mine as much as theirs. And I, they would give me the key and I could go in there all I want. And I did. I went back a few years later. We poked around, went in there all we wanted, you know, for a couple of days. In 1987, your Wautla expedition connected two caves, establishing the second deepest cave in the world. Can you tell us about this expedition? Was it something you put together or were you invited to be a part of it? That was a real, the 87 expedition was a, a major expedition in the history of the exploration of Sustainable Wildlife for several reasons. Several things happened that year. I uh, organized it along with Jim Smith, guy, uh, my best friend I've known for 50 years, uh, not quite, almost that long. Uh, he lives in Atlanta. He's a geologist. He wrote his master's thesis on Sistema Watla. Um, he's one of the big names in caving in the United States. He's a fellow of the Explorers Club and so forth. Uh, he and I organized that expedition. And we had a, you know, we had a list of goals. And the main goal, really, the primary, was to go uh, 600 meters deep in, in the Sotona de San Agustin entrance of Sistema Watla. I don't know how many entrances to the system we had at that time, probably about five. There's 28 now. There was five then, I think. And we went down 600 meters deep. It's about 2,000 feet deep. And then we went horizontally out a long way to where another cave had connected. And it seemed like there was this uh, fracture zone. In fact, we even named it Fracture of the Deep, where the rock beds were kind of folded like you take a deck of cards and bend them. And uh, so there was some major fault action going out there, and it seemed like various caves came together at that place. So we had spent several years, ever since 78, actually. So nine years and six expeditions devoted to exploring this cave that was very high on on a ridge and uh it would add some depth to the cave system and have it right up there ranking among the deepest caves in the world if we could connect it and make it an integrated cave system and that cave had been explored down to a sump as it's called which means water to the ceiling um submerged whole different world then you got to bring tanks in to explore it you know mm. tanks and have somebody knows what they're doing and so uh, Jim Smith did know what he was doing. He was a cave diver at the time. So we uh, went back to and established Camp 4, we call it. Uh, unlike mountaineering, where camps uh, have uh, progressively higher numbers as you go higher in the mountain, in caves, we don't make it like 
camp one, camp two, camp three, camp four, make meaning deeper in the cave. It just means that that's the fourth place you've camped in the cave. Uh, it wasn't as deep as the deepest camp we'd had in the cave at camp three. Anyway, it was way out, incredibly remote, not only going deeper than any cave in the United States, but then a long way horizontally out past, you know, canyons you're climbing on the wall of and waterfalls you're skirting around and so forth. So we established a camp out there. And the first day out of camp, we went to uh, have Jim dive this sump and see if he came up in this other cave. And he did. So, whoa, right off the bat, our primary objective has been met on this expedition. And we're still here for three more weeks. What are we going to, what, what's going to happen now? This is great. And uh, in fact, all of us went through the sump. It was wide and deep and clear. And, and he took us through there one at a time. And we all went to the other side. And uh, it's like the other side of the moon in that case, you know, because you've got to have a tank to get through there. And we uh, connected the survey to this other cave. So uh, we went back to camp. And then the next morning, uh, we heard people coming, which we couldn't believe. I mean, people don't drop by when you're in a place like that. And we knew who it had to be because we knew there was a Swiss group up on the plateau to the east of us but we didn't know that they knew where we were exactly in the cave and let alone find us. But here they came, you know, and, uh, there was a couple of Americans with them, guys we knew. Um, then they just, you know, they knew our objectives and they had our map and they found us and they came into camp and that was just a really great reunion. And right away, this famous caver from Europe, Philippe Royer, who I had never met before, but I certainly knew of him from, you know, reading journals and so on. And he was the guy, you know, he'd grown up across the road from a cave in Switzerland and was like me. He was interested in caves from an early age. And he uh, started going in them very young. And he'd been in every one of the, of the super deep caves of Europe and, you know, was the leader of that group that had come to see us and very dynamic guy you know, charming accent. Uh, he got me aside. He said, come on, I want to talk to you. So we walked down the passage, just the two of us out of earshot of the others. And he put his arm on my shoulder and he, his hand on my shoulder. And he said, I just want you to know that this is the most magnificent cave in the world. I am very impressed. Now they had gone to see the best part. You know, they had gone to see the big rooms and the uh, unbelievable formations and the waterfalls and the canyons and all that stuff that are all in this one certain area, the magical kilometer. It's all just intent. You know, it, it's just, it's just mind blowing. What's all right there. All the great caves of the world, you know, Carlsbad mammoth gaping gill in England, you name it. The best features of all of them are surpassed in this one area of uh, a sustainable wildlife. It's the, it's the place to go see if you're going to go in that cave. And they got just gone there. So he's, he said, it's the most magnificent cave in the world. And he was an authority. So I said, I'll buy that. that okay. Thank you. And then uh, they left and uh, we did some more mapping back in that area, you know, uh, tidied up some surveys to make sure everything was done. And then we had to pack everything out because we had camping gear and, and dive gear and so forth, and we're 2,000 2, feet deep. So each of us got a, 
a load to carry up all those ropes, climbing 2,000 feet of rope with a with a 30 pound pack. And uh, on the way out, and he gets spread out in a deep cave. You know, the first couple of people head out, and you're not going to see them until you're on the surface tomorrow, because they're gone. And I like to bring up the rear, and our rule is always that the last two people stay together. And uh, that way, if anybody ahead of you has got a problem, you can help them solve it, a light problem, whatever it might be. Man, you know, you stay in voice contact or right together on the way out. Well, the guy that I was climbing out with uh, took a fall uh, about, oh, I guess it was about 300 meters deep, maybe 250. Uh, so, you know, more than halfway out, he fell off a little climb. Didn't even have a rope on it. Uh, it's easy climb, but he just missed it. The, the pack threw him off, you know, and he fell and he thought he pulled a muscle in his back, but he thought he could get himself out. And, um, we got within two pits of the entrance and he was exhausted and he, and he was in a lot of pain. He said, I, I'm not going to make it out of here. And I said, uh, well, I've got a rescue blanket in my pack. And at the time, I had a carbide lamp. Uh, we still used them. So it's got a big flame. So I put that under that rescue blanket with him to keep him warm. And I said, I'll go to the surface and I'll uh, bring back in some sleeping bags and a stove and a pot. And we'll eat some soup and you can rest until you're ready to climb out. So I dashed on out of the cave. And it was in the wee hours of the morning by the time I got up to the village. And I woke people up and said that, we had a casualty. I was looking for somebody else to go in because I'd been in the cave for like eight days, but nobody was interested in getting out of their warm sleeping bags. They were willing to help me pack up stuff to go in with. So I did. I turned around and went back in and uh, got him out of his caving clothes into some warm, dry clothes and into a sleeping bag. And in the morning, he thought he could climb out on his own. And a couple more people came in to make sure things were okay. So as he's slowly climbing up the last two ropes before he got to the entrance, uh, we're watching him. And he's slow because he's pulled a muscle, but he's making it. And we're standing there watching him within sight of daylight. And I said, God, I bet you there's a really good view from on top of this big pile of rocks. I bet you can see out the entrance really nicely from there. And I've never been up there before. Let's climb up there. So we climbed up there. And I was right. In fact, there's several good photographs that have been taken of the entrance from up there. But nobody had been up there. There was no footprints. There was no reason to go up there. The cave went the other direction. Well, while we were up there, we heard uh, what I thought was a waterfall. I said, "Where? that's weird. Where's that water coming from? So we poked around. And it wasn't. It was wind and that meant oh my god there's a bunch of passage up here 22 years this cave's been known and nobody's climbed up here before mm. well that is now the major route to the to the bottom most big passages of the cave it had been missed all those years so that was found we that then changed the focus of the expedition the 87 expedition first we connected nitananta established it as the second deepest cave in the world now we've got this major extension of the cave that we can now explore. And then it ended up connecting uh, to a known place much deeper 
that's now the main route for anybody that goes down to the bottom part of that section of the cave. And, and um, those are the two great successes of that expedition. In 2011 and 2012, you explored two of China's longest caves, describing them as the Carlsbad Caverns of China. What was that experience like? I went to the National Convention of the National Speleological Society, which is, you know, one of the highlights of the year to me because mm -hmm. I've got so many friends and I always give a presentation about Watler or something. I like to give slideshows. And um, so I went to one, I don't know exactly what year it was. It was probably around 2008, something like that. And this guy that had been, to, this guy from Blacksburg, Virginia, Mike Futrell, who's very active, very well-known caver from Western Virginia, he uh, gave a presentation about this cave in China that he was exploring. And the Brits had originally uh, gotten into this area of central China that was closed to outsiders, but they worked out permission to be able to explore the caves and and people from other nationalities were joining these British-led expeditions, and he'd gone on one. And he showed this, uh, in his PowerPoint presentation, he showed a video of flying a kite in a cave. Mm. So much wind in the passage that wow. he flew a kite. And I don't remember who I was sitting next to, but I leaned over and I said, I got to go see that place. i never seen wind like that. So I went up to him afterwards and I said, Hey, Mike, uh, how do I get on an expedition? He told me who to write. And, uh, so Diana, my, uh, significant other and I, uh, she's a good caver. We, uh, went, uh, and, uh, flew to Shanghai and, and met, uh, a caver from the States that was living in Shanghai, working as a materials engineer and had learned to speak Mandarin. And we traveled across China to uh, Chongqing, which I'd never even heard of. And it's a city of 25 million people. And it's like something from the future. Wow. I mean, I mean how did I never hear of this place? <laughs> it's where the Yangtze River uh, actually begins, you know, and where three rivers come together and form the Yangtze. Mm -hmm. uh, but just modern, futuristic. And it was the capital of China during the Second World War because they had to bring it inland away from the reach of the Japanese mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, just a, a heck of a place. And we, uh, then went out into the farming country beyond the end of pavement and stayed with a farming family and went in this huge cave that I think like 3000 feet of it was known before cavers started exploring it. And now it's like 75 miles long. And, uh, complex and and the chinese had gone in there through the centuries and mined phosphates out of there for fertilizer or, or even gunpowder and um, so it was amazing where they gotten to in some places uh climbs they'd done you know and, mm. and the poles that they propped against the wall to climb up to, to a place uh, but not not very far into the cave, really, you know, as far as modern cavers with good equipment have gone. So I went on two expeditions two years in a row. It was just fabulous experience, you know, to be to be that far away from home. A funny story was, I don't know if you were told this when you were a kid, but it seems like almost all American kids are, are told by their parents, uh, why are you digging a hole in the backyard trying to dig your way to China? 
Well, we told that in an underground camp with a couple of Chinese with us. And those people are so literal that they just were totally puzzled by that. What are you talking about? The earth has a molten core. You couldn't dig through the earth. It's, it's, it's totally out of the question. And besides, if you think about it, the United States is not directly opposite of China. I mean, you know, it just went. <laughs> what is it that you love so much about caving that keeps you coming back again and again? Well, the main thing I love about it is that uh, I followed my interest and, and it still happens for me. And, and I've done it for a long time and, and still am. So that uh, makes me, I feel, a very privileged person to have found something fairly young that I was interested in, pursued it, and it's worked out great, you know. And and uh, and and I've got really good friends that I've had for forty or fifty years that I hear from all the time, and we do stuff together, and we look forward to the next trip. That's that's a wonderful thing to have in your life. But the cave itself, the the environment of the cave I love too that's where I feel the best is when I'm in one and it doesn't have to be a, a long vast big important cave it can be any cave uh, I don't care I, I like them all um, I like the quiet quiet's hard to come by in my culture you know it's hard to fill up your tank of gas without you know a little TV screen blaring at you a lot of the time. In fact, I avoid these gas stations. I think they're obnoxious. Um, I like the, the quiet. Um, I like the uh, skill it takes to move to a cave. Uh, I've got a I've got a granddaughter now that I've got several grandchildren. And they've all been caving with me, but I've got a granddaughter who likes it and is good at it. And it's amazing how she's so graceful at it at age twelve. You know just smooth as can be. She can walk across a broken field of rock, you know, which most people would just creep across. And she's just like whew, smoothly walks across it like on a sidewalk. And that's neat to see. Um, also, you know, back to my childhood and my interest in rocks and geology is fascinating. Um, and they're so old, you know, uh, ancient. Um, I found in, in three or four instances, I've found ancient footprints, prehistoric people. So that guy was the first person here, and I'm the second. And there was no way that person could imagine me, but I can imagine him because I followed him. And he's barefoot, and he had a torch. Uh, but he was a caver, and he was as curious about this place as I am. I even followed uh footprints and even uh, little deposits of charcoal where a guy had a, a torch that he tapped the burned embers off of. And that's like a Hansel and Gretel uh, bread trail to follow. And one time I got away from my friends and, and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow this guy. And they knew what I meant. And I followed this trail. You know, there'd be a footprint here and a tap mark on the wall there and a little little chunk of charcoal somewhere else. And finally I came to this climb and I worked my way up high and I was above this room way off the floor. And uh, I thought, God, I don't know if that guy did this climb 60 feet of exposure here. Um, 
and he needed a hand to hold that torch in. I got a helmet with a light on it. Then I decided to go ahead and climb it, and I did. And when I got to the, this is only about 15 feet high, but when I got to the top and sat down at the edge, I turned around, and there was a torch with teeth marks. He needed both his hands, too. <laughs> He'd bitten his torch, and well, I could see well. his teeth marks. And he probably had, obviously had a second one that he lit from the first one, you know. So he climbed up there, too. And, and that just seemed to be a connection between me and him. It was almost like I was reaching out and touching this guy from 2,000 years ago. And nobody had been at that spot since he'd been there. I saw no evidence. In fact, we had found that cave, refound that cave. And uh, now, come on, that's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Goodness. Yeah, not, not many people have experienced that type of connection with prehistoric people. Goodness. Exactly. So, God, think of the think of the richness of experience. I would say if I were to sum up what being a caver all my life has been or most of my life has been, what's the great reward? I would say it's the the, the richness of experience. That that's really it. That sums it up, you know. If you had to choose your favorite cave in the world, what would it be? Well, it would be Sistema Watla because, you know, if I was a painter, that would be my masterpiece. That would be my Mona Lisa. But there are others, you know, Honey Creek Cave here in Texas I love. Uh, I've been involved since the get-go. It's 21 miles long, and I've been in there for – I've seen almost all of it. Um, and, and it's still being explored. Um, Mammoth Cave in Kentucky I love going back to. It's been explored for 200 years. In fact – it's been explored for 3,000 years because uh, prehistorics worked their way pretty far into the cave uh, seeking uh, minerals that they exploited. And I heard that you got your granddaughter into caving and that she's already begun mapping uh, unexplored portions of, of a cave here in the U.S. Could you tell us a little bit about that? No, I took my granddaughter on an expedition to Mammoth in 2018. It's a national park. So the rule that the cave... Research Foundation has. That's a group that I'm part of that's uh, got an agreement with the National Park Service, and they and they explore and map in Mammoth and Carlsbad and in other caves and national parks. Uh, the rule is if you bring a a family member, you got to be with them all the time. So the caving I did was what she could do, and that was fine. Um, she's good at it and she likes it. So. While we were there, there's a historian of Mammoth Cave, a guy that lives in Missouri. So he's pretty close. You know, he can drive over there in about three hours. And he's just the, the archivist and the historian. And he found a letter from the 1800s, like 1830s or something like that, where they'd mentioned this upper-level passage that had not been rediscovered. So he went in there while we were on this expedition and they did a climb and reached this passage and it hadn't been mapped, hadn't been seen since the 1830s. So we went in there uh, and my granddaughter went with me. And when we got near the end of it, there was this, there was this uh, pool of water uh, that was at a lower level. We had to, there was a narrow ledge around it. And, and you could really see that the passage ended there, but it was a narrow ledge and you sure didn't want to fall off that ledge in this pool of water. It'd be really hard to get back out. 
And, uh, but my granddaughter, Sophie volunteered to crawl around that ledge to the other side and be the target for the laser uh, mapping device we were using, you know, hold up a, a little piece of plastic as the, as the target. So she went around there and, um, and did that. And then that night, or actually the next morning back at the, uh, research station where we have breakfast together, uh, they have people give reports on the, on the trip of the day before. And so I gave the, the report about our trip to go map this passage. And I then said, well, we made the longest cave in the world longer, which means we set a new world record yesterday. And my granddaughter here is the one that really set it because she's the only one that went to the very end. So ever since then, I've had this uh, running joke with her that I always bring it up in front of all her friends that Sophie set a new world record. And I do have her convinced that it is a good resume entry because as you know, when people look at your resume, it's the stuff that they, that, that jumps out at them that they want to ask about. I said, put that there. When you were 12 years old, you set a new world record. They will ask you about that. Then you get to tell the story. What's the most important piece of advice you'd give to aspiring cavers? You know, I got an email from a guy two days ago. He was a caver in Colorado. And he said, oh, I know this guy and that guy that you know well, and they've been to Watler with you. And he said, I really have been doing a lot for the last five years. And I want to go to Mexico and be on an expedition. Uh, what advice can you give me? And, and I said, well, the first piece of advice I would give you, you've done. You've reached out to somebody. Uh, hmm. a lot of people don't, they just think it comes to them and, and it doesn't really work that way. You got to pursue things in life. Uh, and from the caves you've been going to and, and, uh, the experiences you've had, I, you know, you're, you're qualified. And I said, here's how it works in Wautla because, uh, it's well known. A lot's been published. We've been exploring it for years. It's a significant cave. I give presentations at the annual conventions of the National Speleological Society. I, I, people come up to me after I talk, want to come. I tell everybody the same thing to make it fair, to make it equitable. And that is send me an email at the 1st of August, because that's when we start our momentum toward the next expedition the following April. And I told this guy, it's amazing to me how so many people don't do that. They're not organized enough. They don't put it in their calendar. Something else comes up. They didn't mm. really mean it. Whatever. It's amazing. Fewer than 50%, maybe 40% actually do it. Sometimes less than that. My advice is uh, get all the experience you can. Go as often as you can. Keep your gear up. It's not a cheap endeavor. There's always some other toy you want to get. Something else. Um get the best lights you can afford. Um, always observe the number one rule of caving, which is don't get hurt. In fact, we camped deep in a Watla cave one time years ago, and there's no law enforcement here. This is total anarchy. This is uncomfortable. We need to at least have one law. And we ended up uh, enacting two laws. The first one was don't get hurt and punishment was swift. You're hurt. Um, the second one was when you went to get water, clip into the line because it was right at the edge of a 200-foot pit. 
but people weren't observing the second law. They were not clipping into the rope. So we repealed that law and we, and we left the don't get hurt law as the only law we had. So I was joking around, but it's true. You know, I've been injured underground. I've been rescued once. I've been on some rescues. It's not the place to get hurt. We had a, a Polish guy in Wautla uh, in uh, 1980, 41 years ago, uh, have a terrible accident deep underground. We had to go to the rescue. So we had to go all the way to southern Mexico to help get this guy out. It took six days to get him out from where he was. And he was terribly injured. Took a bad fall. So, you know, go slow. Don't get hurt. For any listeners who might be interested in trying out a caving expedition, what skills should they begin trying to master? Is there a particular cave you'd recommend for beginners or a caving organization they should reach out to in order to get their feet wet? Yeah, anywhere in the United States that caves are located, there's a caving club. There are very few caving clubs where there are no caves. I think the one in Delaware is, is an example, but Delaware is not very far from Virginia where there's lots of caves. So in Texas, there's caving clubs in Austin, San Antonio, Houston, and Dallas, big cities. If somebody wants to be a caver, they need to go meet the people to do it. Lastly, one question I like to ask all our guests at the end of each episode is if you have a book or film recommendation, something that our listeners can dive into beyond this episode. Yeah, my favorite film of them all, and I've seen probably all of them, uh, is uh, Cave of Forgotten Dreams by Werner Herzog. Now, I, I like Werner Herzog's films anyway. He's German, but he lives in L.A., I never met him, but I, but I like his films, and I discovered them in the late 70s. And he's still making them. In fact, he's made a, a one recently about meteor craters that I, that I haven't seen yet. He made Grizzly Man, if you've ever seen that. Mm -hmm. um, but he made Cave of Forgotten Dreams. And to me, that expresses what caving is to me. And the reason I say that is because the story there is that these French cavers back uh, not that long ago, you know, less than 20 years ago. I don't remember the exact age or year it was, but they found a cave up on a cliff face in France and went in it and they came to a pit and they rigged a rope and they dropped down this pit and came into a big passage that had been sealed off for 30,000 years. The entrance had collapsed sometime in the past 30,000 years. Wow. And Neolithic people 30 and 32,000 years ago had used that cave as a, as a huge canvas for unbelievably well-done paintings of animals. And Herzog heard about it, and it's very well protected by the French. Nobody gets to go in there. But he's a famous filmmaker. So he uh, talked his way into it, and he was poo-pooing 3D movies at the time because they were popular, and he said, ah, it's a gimmick. It's not, you know, it's not quality filmmaking. But then again, here's this cave now where the prehistorics had used the textures of the wall, the three-dimensional aspects of the walls, to enhance their paintings. So he made a 3D movie in there so that you could sense that. And there's some really great aspects of that film. For one, I'll tell you one. One is 
they put a walkway through there because there's footprints on the floor from 30 some thousand years ago. And at one point, Herzog gets them to shine these bright movie lights at a steep angle across the floor so that the footprints stand out. And there's footprints of a child walking through there with a wolf. Now, that really provokes (laughs) the image of a boy joining his painter dad to go in when his dad's painting on the wall and he's got his pet wolf with him, you know. I love that kind of thing. So it's not just archaeology or, or, or ancient art. It's that modern explorers have found something just absolutely amazing in a cave. And that's why that film is so cool to me. Uh, books uh, definitely start with Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth. It's fiction, but it's a mm. great classic. So that's a good book. My book, uh, Woutla, 30 Years in One of the World's Deepest Caves, is uh, autobiographical as well as uh, about the 30 years between 1977 and uh, 2007, the expeditions I was on. That's why I say autobiographical because it's about the expeditions I was on, but I was on all the good ones those years. Um, And then there's, you know, many other books, uh, anything by Brooker, like the longest cave, Brooker and Watson uh, guys. I know Uh, Watson passed away a couple years ago, but Brooker's still alive. He's in his early nineties, but those two guys organized the cave research foundation and, and uh, got the momentum going to explore the world's longest cave has pieced it together great guys from uh, uh, Brooker lives in Ohio where I grew up and uh, Watson uh, was a professor of philosophy at uh, Washington University in St. Louis and his wife is the foremost uh, cave archaeologist of uh, the Americas Hmm. that's some good books it'd be a good start to all you listeners you can find links to other interviews with Bill online as well as purchase his books I highly recommend checking them out And Bill, thank you for taking the time to be with us here at the Roundtable tonight. It was an informative discussion, and we wish you all the best in your endeavors of exploration. All right, take care. Thanks, Bill. You too. Thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode. We'll see you next week, back here at the Explorer's Roundtable. The Explorers Roundtable was created to provide a place for explorers to share their tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in fireside discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. If you have a story worth telling, we invite you to share it with us at explorersroundtable.com.